Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, this is Nina, the host of the Nina Carver Show. Make sure you listen to my podcast where I cover every Liverpool Premier League game the wins, the draws, the losses. I'm not going to lie, we don't have an awful lot of those. Good things are happening with Liverpool Football Club. And you can listen to this podcast. Just search for the Anfield Index podcast on Acast, on Apple Podcasts, or any other provider you listen through. So join me as I cover all of Liverpool's Premier League games on Anfield Index. Thank you so much for listening. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Busy Being Black means we recognize that we did not get here alone. Mark Thompson is a gay black elder, an HIV activist and writer, and one of three founders of Blackout UK, a platform dedicated to amplifying the stories of gay black men. In my first of two conversations with Mark, we discussed the gay black experience of the 1980s, including the little discussed effects of the HIV crisis on our community. We also touch on the importance of intergenerational conversations and our responsibility as a new generation of queer black folk to pursue a connection with our elders, those who might better illuminate our path through the present. You'll hear the pouring of wine and the clinking of glasses because Mark and I tore through two bottles of Chardonnay, a decision I would definitely regret the morning after. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Mark Thompson. Well, you know, it's it's very different. Mm. Um, you might like that. I hate it, but it's a whole different story. Well, I saw Marcus Garvey and Lane on the way here, and mm-hmm. that made me chuckle. Well, this is um, this place itself has got history. I mean, Rotimi lived here. Rotimi, the artist. Right. You no. Know nope. You need to find that. You need to Google that. Rotimi Fanny Coyote was a queer photographer in the eighties. Um, I think he might have died of AIDS. I'm not sure. Um, he lived here in his flat and his work is, is amazing. His work's astounding, what he does with black bodies, black queer stuff. He's a great friend of Jamu's. Um, lived here on the corner. Just there was uh, was Race Today, where Darkus Howe worked and lived in Kwesi Johnson and CLR James. Um, this street was where the Brixton riots took place. Everything, I mean, this is kind of a little square circle. Queer life. Brixton Fairies started here. Um, Jonathan Blake, who was in Pride, and is a HIV activist and one of the first people diagnosed, lives across the garden. So this is kind of like this little space itself is like Barbary Lane. 
I was Michael Tolliver once. <laughs> <laughs> I still am. It's the older version. <laughs> yeah, so, where were we? Well, I find this is a great place to be, actually, where we are just now. Um, this shared history that we have. Mm. And about which you, got, you and I have spoken at length. Mm-hmm. About this transfer of knowledge. And something that we're both passionate about is this cross-generational conversation. And I don't know what it will take for us to realize that there is so much to gain. And when I say us, I mean a new generation, a younger generation. What it will take for us to realize the, the necessity of gathering around the table with... And don't be offended. Mm-hmm. Our elders yeah, I, in I, this way. Mm-hmm. I wear that badge with pride. You what? I wear that badge with pride. As an elder. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've earned this. Yes. You know, we've earned this. We've survived. And so we should be considered that. And that comes with a, matter, a certain amount of respect. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it's going to take. I'm not sure if it's a... I'd I love around the table. I, I, I want ongoing conversations mm-hmm. to happen, you know. I want those conversations not to always be physical or verbal conversations it's about inclusion with Mm. each other i think it's sometimes just recognizing that there are elders Mm -hmm. you know that you've not you're not the first person to do this or the reason you're the first person to do this is because somebody paved the way for you and i don't think any of us who are of a certain age or who are no longer here want you know memorials or people paying homage to us in clubs it's not about that it's that it's that kind of just acknowledgement that you you exist. And queer life, wherever you are, life really rubs out the elders, the elders, the older people. It's mm-hmm. what happens across the board. I don't think... As well, because our society favours youth. Youth, yeah. And that's reinforced and, the, you know, younger folk take that on and we live in an age where, you know, the self and who you are and your front and centre and nothing else matters apart from you. Right, mm-hmm. so when I when I sometimes look around and I see some of my younger brothers, and I admire what they do, you know, I, I genuinely do, and I have so much love for them. Um, but I sometimes, to be really frank, go, okay, so how much is it is it for you, mm-hmm. and how much is it for community? So I see a lot of folk talk about their blackness and their gayness. Great, but it's their, that's their platform. Are you reading me? No. No, but I think it's, but I think it's, it's an interesting thing that I've observed, and it's not. And I, I don't think it's just you. I think it's lots of people do it. Mm. You know, blackness and gayness is who I am. Mm. So how can I tell a story from that? No, I think with you, you are genuinely doing some transformative work for yourself. You're working stuff through, and I think that may lead to building. Community. Well, that's my goal. Yeah. The goal is community. And I think, you know, when I cottoned on to the fact that I can't find myself without finding the elders. Right. That for me has been the big thing. Because one of my big resentments is that really, as a, as a young gay man, I was like pushed out into the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And just like figure that shit out. Yes, exactly. And it is such a huge resentment of mine that I've had to really try and work through. Because, you know, I like learning things the hard way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there comes a time where I think, and you'll know this probably as well, but that as a young person, I really wish I didn't have to 
um, have been sexually assaulted. Right. I really wish that I didn't have to learn all these lessons the hard way. Yeah. And I think there's really something in a, in, in creating space for us to have these conversations. It's much in the same way. I think that, you know, to use a very prototypical relationship, a mother and a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, a mother will pass on information, that knowledge, here's what to look out for. Here's what not to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're missing that. It's, you know, I think it's an interesting one, right? Because I think it's the first time that we've also had elders in the queer community. Ah. My generation, uh-huh. our generation. <laughs> well, it's the first time. Right. Okay, so when I look around, say, men who are like in their mid-40s to say late 50s, early 60s now, we survived. Yes. We're here. There, there is nobody ahead of us. Right? The old, one of the oldest gay men that I know who, who, who would be of that generation who's out and has lived an openly gay life and has done work for the community is 61. That, and that's, that's, what, that's not that old, right? Really, in the grand scheme of things. Whereas I can look at white queer folk and, you know, you've got Ian McKellen, you've got so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So they, they have that slight edge ahead of us. So if we think that where we were the first generation who were out, proud, openly queer men, it's no surprise that we're playing catch-up so, yeah, maybe I need to be a bit more generous to my younger brothers because a friend of mine was saying to me the other day, you know, well, you know, remember when you were 17 and, you know, people were telling you, you know, listen to what I'm talking to you about, etc., etc." And you're like, yeah, but you're 25. I don't need to hear from you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, so imagine here I am at 48 trying to teach the younger brother shit and he's like, but you're not living my life. I've got Snapchat or, you know, not using Snapchat today, right? But... I think that there's a misconception that this is how these kind of relationships function, right? Because I think for some reason, we've perhaps been taught that someone's trying to relate an old way of life to a new way of life. Mm-hmm. And actually, the conversation is really that you're the first generation to have figured this out, or have tried to figure tried this to figure out. out. Yeah who have survived the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. who has then dealt with the repercussions of the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. and we're a new generation who has grown up as just the second generation of out queer black people who really are now dealing with Snapchat and social media and the internet and reality TV. So yes, we're dealing with two very different circumstances, mm-hmm. but those lessons that we're trying to learn, those that connection that we crave for identity and belonging mm-hmm. and mentorship. I mean, these, these, these ideas perhaps transcend generations. Absolutely. And, and, and realities. The, the factors that impacted on our lives 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, still impact on young black gay men today. Mm. If we, you know, we will, you know, if we talk about HIV and why, Black men are disproportionately affected by HIV across the world or in the UK. You know, if we talk about the facts around lack of representation, you know, in the media, on TV, all of these factors, if we talk about homophobia, racism, they've not moved, they've not shifted. We are still in the same place. We are still having the same conversations. I think what would be valuable is to have that conversation across generations. So how did you guys deal with that? How did you manage that? You know, um, what enabled you to get from there 
to here mm. to survive that? You know, was it about family? How did you manage your friends? You know, when you set up your first club, what did you do? You know, why did you do such and such for your community? Yes. You Can know? I tell you the lesson I've learned just by osmosis from you, mm. particularly, is this unapologeticness. Mm. That's and I've learned that you've never said the word to me unapologetic. We've never had a conversation about how you choose to live your life or the way you view the world. This is really the first time we're getting into an in-depth sure. conversation about this. And just literally from being around you, that's the understanding that I've got. Ah, it's about being unapologetically who you are. For my parents. Mm. That, doesn't come, that doesn't come from, I'm sure, there, you know, the influences of, of particularly black gay men in my life. Yeah, I can think of some instances. But my family, my parents instilled in me a very, very strong sense of my own self-worth, my identity and my being, and allowed me to be, you know? So I'm incredibly privileged, incredibly fortunate as a black gay man coming out when I did not to be rejected by my parents, to have challenging conversations like anybody did, but my parents were broadly accepting. And their their primary concern was my safety. That was it. How how safe are you going to be out there in the world? Because you know what it's like. You're a black boy. Did you feel that concern from your parents explicitly? For my mom, yeah. Right. I mean, my mom, my mom was upfront. I mean, my mom was like, you know, baby, you know. I mean, you know, my mom was like, well, you know, I'm kind of worried that you know, because I see boys get taken down to Piccadilly, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, you know, that's not kind of going to happen. What time's the tube leave? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will be there forever. Right, exactly. No, I mean, my mom did things like, you know, she would allow me to have my friends, like my group of young black boys, who are my friends, hang out. Because she knew that, and we were all gay, in our late teens, early 20s, because she knew that outside might be unsafe for us. So better there. So it was around protecting as well. So that gave me an incredible strength of, of confidence. And I've also kind of do have, and I've increasingly got, as I've got older, more of a less of a filter and more of a don't give a fuck because my attitude is this it, if it needs to be called it needs to be called and I think I can pretty much back up what I've got to say you know what I'm saying I will pull out evidence why I believe such and such and um, it serves nobody to be apologetic really does it? Mm. I'm respectful and I'm mindful of other people and try to be really conscious of the space I operate in and I have a huge personality um, but it's, it's kind of just gets me by you know and I suppose there must be some element of you've, you're here because you got yourself here yeah yeah pretty much I don't know that's the vibe I get from you I get the I, I get the impression, and this maybe is me projecting and looking, you know, at you as a mirror. But you're so proactive, hmm. it seems, in your life, and so I, I, I so I don't know. So I, I feel that kind of unapologeticness is this thing that so many of us are working towards, right? And uh, indeed, that's the tagline of. The podcast yeah. is living in the fullness of our queer black lives. Mm. How so that and that means being unapologetic. I'd like to be able to distill that unapologeticness and that journey for people mm. who might be listening, who are wondering. I want that, but how do I get there? 
I think I've always been, I've always strived to be authentic, mm. whatever that means. I try to be myself and I'm, I'm basic, right? In the sense of I'm, I'm working class, you know, I come from incredibly basic working class Jamaican roots here. My aspirations in life were never fame or glory or, or anything fabulous. It was just, I just like having nice things, you know? And What's your start saying? I'm a Cancerian. Right. Oh, that's why your home is so beautiful. Got it. Thank you. I just, I just like nice things, right? And being comfortable and having simple things around me, you know? I'm not a huge traveler. You know, I like, I like my home to be nice. I like a nice wardrobe. I surround myself with really nice friends and I keep it quite simple. And I see. You see what I mean? So you're saying, I think, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Go for it. But you're saying that you understand yourself. I'm constantly under trying to understand myself. I'm working constantly to that. Right. Yeah. No, but on a, on, a, on a primary level, I, I, would, I always think of myself as just this regular guy. Right. Just really simple. So when people are like, oh my God, you've done this and wow. I'm like, yeah, but I'm just Mark. Doing, for me, it's like, I just do what I do. I, that's what it is. I just do what I do. It's literally, everyone I speak to says the same thing. Yeah, probably. Right. Probably. And, and, so, and so it then becomes, and this is what I love about these conversations, mm. is that what I'm learning is that we embody the people we want to be. Mm. I've always, I, I've just done what I did. You know, my activism work never felt like activism. It was just, I don't want other men to go what I went through or it's really important people understand this information. And I think, again, as I've got older and because of so many events in the past six or seven years where all of us collectively have become much more vocal, mm. you know, much more woke and applying that wokeness, right, to our lives. I was always like that, but it's just got louder. So sometimes like an old Facebook thing from 2007 will pop up and I've said something about white folk and I'm like, oh shit, I didn't realize I said that. <laughs> but not in a, but, but what surprises me was like, oh my God, you were that person back then. I didn't realize. So for me, it's just, I've just always just been on that journey and that path. And again, it comes from my parents. My parents are, are immigrants. They came here, they experienced the racism of the UK in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Oh, so they were the Windrush generation. The children of the Windrush generation. The children of the Windrush generation. Yeah, my, gra right. my grandparents came, my grandfather came in the 50s and my grand, my mum and my, my dad came in the mid 60s. Wow. Um, but my dad certainly would have was certainly a victim of police harassment and hassle in the seventies. My mum would have got it at work as a whack woman in all white workspace. Mm. So, and I was in a school where I was, you know, where there were a handful of black kids, usually African Caribbean, mm. in that school. So, you know, <clears throat> yeah. I want to unpick something with you. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Regarding the piece that I wrote. Yes. Yes. Because I think it's this... Because when I read the... You know, so basically, I, I wrote that piece about Know Your History yeah, yeah. and how important it is for us to mm -hmm. um, understand from whence we came. Mm. And I took issue with the questions you posed around the man from... The man who pointed me yeah. to. And I've been really trying to unpick... Why I took such issue with you calling that out. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, I haven't been able to figure it out on my own. Okay. So I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's so important that in this exchange of information that, the, that, it's, a, that it's an honest exchange. Mm -hmm. And so 
I learned from John about Byard Rustin. So he yeah. kind of like pushed me in that direction. Yeah. And everything I've learned since then and the people I've met since then um, have opened me up to a queer colored history what? that is not spoken about. And indeed, that was the kind of like huge revelation with discovering Byard Rustin was that even as an African-American, I had never heard his name spoken. Mm. And that for me was just this, this enormous re revelation and then led me on a path of discovery, which ultimately led me to you. Mm. So I guess I took issue with the fact that I felt that because I had encountered that history via a white man, mm -hmm. that it might somehow be less relevant mm -hmm. or less important. Mm -hmm. I think the question I was posing, if I can remember what I, what I wrote, was do you think it was, do you, do you think it was less or more important? And if it had come from a person of colour, would that have made a difference? Ah, okay. It wasn't, it, it wasn't devaluing that it happened. Right. Get it, it happened. And I think mm. what I learned, what I learned is we get our history from everywhere. Yeah. And I know I've got my queer history from a range of places. Mm. And I think it's really important that we have that history. I think it was to, I think I want you to kind of pull out of the article because you really valued that. And yeah. You really valued that experience from John and I think that was fantastic. And I, and I think it was okay for me, it was okay. So if you'd got that and it took you down this journey to eventually get more queer colour history, mm. right? What difference would it have made in that journey if it was me who had told you that when I'd met you, I'd met you at that time? Yes, I, I get that. that. Because that, I mean? that would, but that's this kind of hypothetical situation mm. that's so hard to ruminate on because for me, the value and, and, and indeed the juxtaposition of those histories happened because of how you and I collided. Yeah. And I was like, and I was like, fuck. Mm. <laughs> There's this entire history that I didn't know about that John could never have even possibly mm. begun to tell me about. The question I have, and this question is, it's more about who is the storyteller. Storytellers, they also, I know if, if my history teacher is white and English tells me about Bayard Rustin, <laughs> it's coming from a particular place. Yeah, and maybe missing love, something. Well, it, 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 may be, it may be love, and I think he's an amazing civil rights figure, and you mm. need to know him as a young black gay man, he's one of your role models. Yeah. But then if, a, if my black queer history teacher tells me, he may also tell me, or she almost tell me, you know, you know, I, I get Bayard here because, you know, we look like this and his experience in church and yes. all the rest of it. So that deeper understanding. That's exactly And right. I think that's, that's what I want to tease out. I think it's about reflecting, and you say it's hypothetical, so it's difficult to ruminate on yeah. it. But I think sometimes you can throw that out and go, well, actually, no, did, did, I, did I miss something? Mm. And it doesn't take away from that experience, right? right? Touche. It just makes you go, yeah, I love the fact that John told me that if it, maybe that little nugget was missing. That's all. Yes, and, it, but, and, and I think that, I'm thinking out loud here, but I think that realization that there was an intergenerational conversation missing mm. was in part because I cried in front of John right. and realized what he had been through. Mm -hmm. But then when I had gotten to Byard Rustin and then eventually you, that was, that was compounded for me. Right. That okay. was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. How that. does someone like me, of my passions and interests, mm not know about someone like Byard Rustin and therefore not about someone like Mark Thompson. Mm. And I just find that to be a really fascinating journey that 
you know, we don't talk about. And then, you know, my situation with the tweets, you know, there was, you know, what I was, I remember I was on the phone with Patrick mm. and he was saying, well, you should have known better. Mm. And that really riled me up. Mm. I mean, I didn't communicate that at the time because it wouldn't have been appropriate. But I thought, how dare you tell me what I should have known better at that time. Mm. I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. Of course, yeah. And I said to him, you know, I am a product of my environment. And he immediately dismissed that. Mm. Immediately. That somehow, as a, as a gay man of color, I wouldn't be vulnerable to the toxic <laughs> effects of living in a white culture or thereby passing it on. Living, living specifically in a white gay culture. White gay culture. Yes, yes in a white gay culture. Because I think that, that's what I saw, mm. right? That's mm. what I saw. And I, and I always, I think I said to you, and I said, so I know I certainly said to people, that, that was your story. Mm. You know, I hang out in balance. This is what we do. I mean, <laughs> anything I said is definitely something I've heard a white person say. And that is the God to honest truth. And so this idea that I should have been further along you know, someone else had emailed me saying that she was so disappointed and she didn't even know me, but it was a black woman. And I remember emailing her back going, you don't need to be disappointed in me. Mm. I am disappointed in myself. And then I got thinking about it afterwards and thinking, where does that disappointment come from? And where does my disappointment in myself come from? Mm. Is it this, you know, is she disappointed? And, and I say this too, cause I want your feedback on this. I felt her disappointment was linked directly to the disappointment of queer black people who said, we were rooting for you. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like there was this, um, there was this expectation that I could never have even controlled anyway. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you disappointed in me because I'm a black man trying my hardest? Are you disappointed in me because I failed along the way? Are you disappointed in me because I didn't get here and it wasn't a smooth ride to get here? Are you disappointed in me because I represent every single black person in the world? Why are you disappointed in me? What if she says you're disappointed in you because you just wrote those shitty things? Perhaps. If it was that simple. You know, for, I think, you know, when we, when we spoke recently, you know, I kind of referenced, you know, the, the, the Tyro, which I think, you know, we laughed at. Yeah, we were rooting for you. We were rooting for you. We were rooting for you. But it was also, I, I remember reflecting and thinking, oh my God, we got Barack in the White House. Right? Ah. We got Barack in the White House. Right. right? And, and, it, and, and I don't think, I think that the disappointment and all of it comes from, we landed. Right. We got there. And, and on reflection, kind of landed at what? Really? Yeah. Okay. Because I right. remember, I remember going to the, to the GT party mm -hmm. and kind of going, okay really kind of glad I got nominated but I looked around and I was and you know I'd be, I'd be blunt I kind of came away going we didn't really lose much mm. we didn't really lose much because mm. I kind of reflected on what, 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 what within that world what could you what would they have allowed you to do that's right and everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. you know the God that shines down on us and puts challenges in our way so we can see brighter and see differently in the future right so maybe you dodge the bullet Maybe this is your path and this is your mm. journey for all of those things. But I think at this point it is about, it's partly because, oh my gosh, these, these things. Okay, those things are there. Those things were said. 
But it's also, I think it's that bigger thing of shit. We had Barack in the White House. Right. And what do we do now? Mm-hmm. And how do we handle that? And that's a community disappointment. I think there were there were varying levels of different people. Mm. You know, I my disappointment. I didn't even have a disappointment. I was pissed. Mm. Yeah, I was pissed. You know what I mean? But I spoke to you. We had it out. We had that's a conversation. Right. I'm like, yo, I'm here. If you need us, this is what we do. We rally round. Um, and they do shitty things. You know, they do shitty things. It happens. Mm. But our resilience. That's what keeps us going. Yeah. And kind of leaping back just really quickly, if you allow me to, how that question of how I got from there to where I am. Yes. Resilience. Right. Constantly picking myself up. Constantly yeah, just because define resilience, right? Define what that looks like. For me, it's it's when it is that it's a simple kind of adage. When I get knocked down, I dust off, I get back up. Yeah. I have to. You know, the day has to go on. And also Knowing in my heart, it gets better. Mm-hmm. It heals. I, I, I was recently reflecting on the, you know, I'm trying to work out an article in my head for next year, not just yet, of <laughs> X amount of things I've learned at 50. Right. And one of them, which I will give away, is um, the heart heals. The heart heals. It heals. No matter what happens, you heal. We've got years behind us. Brother. I think of the ancestors. <laughs> right. Do you think, of the, you think of the ancestors? 100%. And increasingly, again, as I get older, I and I'm reading more, and I've always known about my history, but I'm really connecting to that. I know that these people are survivors. At this intersection of blackness and queerness, mm. this is what I've learned. Maya Angelou, I walk in with 10,000, mm. right? I am genetically descended from survivors. Mm-hmm. But in this connection with you... I am connected to a community of survivors. Mm-hmm. And I think those two things compound and expand and multiply. And that's what's so exciting to me is that not only do we share, I mean, we're, yeah, because your family's Jamaican. Mm-hmm. So we, you and I are literally sitting across from each other in this beautiful flat in Brixton, sharing a bottle of Chardonnay because our ancestors survived the Middle Passage. Right, exactly. You're sitting in front of me because you survived the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's just huge to me. How do we begin to show deference to people like you who, you know, against every conceivable odd, are here now? The way you show it mm-hmm. is you continue carrying the flame. You continue doing the work. You don't sit on your ass. You don't sit on your laurels. You continue doing what we've been doing. Mm. You keep, you keep building a better world for, people that, for yourself and for the people that come up around you. And that, that, that's our duty, you know, that's our responsibility is to build that better world. And, and I'm not talking on a macro level, of course, I recycle and I do all that kind of shit <laughs> I'm meant to do, right? Because I'm a good person. <laughs> but I'll fly wherever I need to. Uh, but in my little world that I occupy, be that in Brixton, be that in the black queer community that I occupy, right, that I live in, that I've spent 30 odd years of my life in, it's about constantly improving that. Mm. So when that young brother or that young sister was kind of grappling or dealing with stuff, it may not be me that created it, but it could be somebody else that's done, like this, done this podcast because they saw what happened prior to that. Mm. And that lineage comes way down Right, so I got involved in activism work not just because of HIV, 
but because of my blackness as well. And I knew growing up in Brixton at the time that I did, with a racist police force, with a school system that was against us, with all of these things that were happening, it was my responsibility to fight for that justice mm. as well. So that's the other intersection that comes into it. Do you want to elucidate for me what your experience was in the 80s? And I think, uh, yeah. Just Which bit of it? It was a big decade. It was a big decade. <laughs> well, I think I'd like to focus on the HIV crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there we'll, you know, we can go anywhere yeah, from yeah, there. Yeah. But I really want to understand and want other people to understand um, that environment what was going on? Yeah, what was going on? Because I know I've I've read what I've read from that time, mm. and so I understand kind of what was going on in mass media, mm-hmm. which, from what I've gathered, was really focused on white people. It, for, as far as HIV/AIDS, is from yeah, what I've gathered, yeah, and so kind of I'd like to understand more what your experience was as a gay black mm. man when the AIDS crisis descended on. Like, okay, I mean I think that. It was presented as... It's an interesting one. Cause it wasn't even presented as, as a white gay or white person thing. It was presented as a gay thing. Right. And then gay, okay. red, white. Okay. okay. Pretty much what it does now. So, <laughs> and even when, I, even when I do reflective documentaries and stuff with people now, and there's still folk who are like, hey, let's, talk about, let's, let's make a documentary about the 80s. I'm always having to say to them, you know you're a black folk, right? And so he's like, could you get me some? And I'm like, here I am. So it's usually me. So I came out in 1985. Sorry. Okay. Say that again. Just because I want people to really hear that. So when folk approach me now to do documentaries, reflective work on what happened in the eighties around HIV, very often I'd have to remind them, you know, there were black folk around, and then they're like, "Where are they?" And I'm like, "Here I am," right. because those folk are either silently gone and forgotten because it was never spoken about. Um, a few of the brothers migrated to the US, you know, because of better treatment. They worked, some lived, some died. So, wow. I came out in 85, I was 16, and I'd heard about this thing um, through seeing documentaries on TV. But I saw sick white gay men in New York in hospital beds. Right. Nothing to do with me. I'm in Brixton. The men I'm fucking are in Tottenham or Finsley Park. Um, so and they're black mm. so that's got nothing to do with me I'm young I'm out there um, and I had a couple of partners and um, it was just so separate but I knew from the few friends because I, I only had a few friends when I was quite young on the scene they were older than me as well they were all in their mid to late 20s um, and they kind of knew about this thing but it was still really distant and I went and got a test um, and I was 17 17 and a bit and I went on for this test, popped along, just thought I'll be in and I'll be out, which I was. And I came back a couple of weeks later because there was no finger prick and off you go. Mm-hmm. You had to wait two weeks. And I came back and I got a positive result and blew my mind. It's like four weeks before Christmas. So you got a positive result in 1986. Just November. November 1986 mm-hmm. when you were 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was six months old when you were... When you 
received your positive results? I mean, I love doing workshops with younger gay men and, you know, and saying, you know, so how long have you been diagnosed and how old are you? And then drop in, I have a virus older than you. And I always think that's highly amusing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To try and tell me shit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So pipe down, little one. Yeah, really. Okay. okay. I have got Um, a virus older than you. (laughs) We got ID to prove that's it. gonna be the name of this this episode. Um and I I know that I was in, in the community. <laughs> Sorry, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I and I you have to laugh at this. No, shit, absolutely. Right? I mean <laughs> shit. I mean god thirty years I've got you know, I, I have to laugh at it. You've right. had HIV for thirty years. Thirty two years. Thirty two years. Mm. I've been diagnosed thirty two years. Yeah. Oh, because of course you might have had it. Before. I might have had it before that. Right, not right. For, not much longer before that. I'm pretty sure how, when, where, and who. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because I under, now I understand seroconversion illness, so I know all the signs and I can track back. Um, wow. So it, it kind of all makes sense, you know. But I do remember at the time, not many people in the in, in the black gay community because it was a black gay community. It wasn't a black queer community. Right, right, okay. Um, it wasn't, you know from all over the diaspora. It was African, Caribbean, and African. Um, usually second generation, third generation men who were black, British. Very different experience and very very smaller. And I remember nobody, I didn't know anybody. There was nobody to talk to about it. And I told one or two people. So, okay. Yeah, so, you got your diagnosis in November mm-hmm. and... You had no one to talk to about it. I told my mom. What did what was your mom's reaction? My mom's reaction was the best reaction in the world. She just said to me, "You might get knocked over by a bus tomorrow. At least I know what to do to support you and help you." Wow. I was like, "Don't worry, you'll be fine." Of course, I know she probably broke down in pieces after. But of she, course, behind closed doors, yeah. Yeah, but she 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 <laughs> did what she needed to do, and even now, my mom is like, anyway, you know, on my case. But she, yeah, she was completely supportive. Wow. Mm. Okay, so then we can move on. So you then had, you told a few people told besides a few people. your mom. Mm-hmm. And your point is that there was not, I yeah. mean, there wouldn't have been any support services for There, were, there, were, there was, not for, not for who? For gay black men. No, no, no. There, there were one or two support services um, opening up, you know, the Landmark, the Lighthouse, um, which were usually to help people die. And to get through the day to day because people were dying. I mean, this is this is thing. And if you're 17, 18 and you've got this hanging over your head and you're young and you're pretty and you're at college doing your A-levels and you're about to go off to uni because you're smart. And then all of a sudden you're like, fuck, what am I going to do? Um, that's resilience. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is, defined. Bam. Um, so, yeah, so there were no, but I found I did find support services when I needed them and I needed them for emotional support. I was very fortunate. I never got unwell. Um, I was never hospitalized. The only time I got well was when I started HIV treatment, funny enough, like 17, 18 years later. Um, but I never got ill, so I was really lucky. But I did go to support services because I needed a sense of belonging and camaraderie. And I knew in the black gay community, the handful of people I told, told other people. And told other people. So before you knew it, I was not, I was marked with the virus. Right. And so did you feel like you didn't have any choice but to own it? No. Or God, did no. you have a time where you were like, you didn't want anyone to know? Completely. I mean, I kept it, I tried to keep it really close to my chest. And I would date people and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disclose. So I'm sure you're probably listening to this now. 
Um, and I would sit by the phone in dread when that phone would ring and I'd get, listen, we need to talk. And that happened a few times. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of my early 20s angry, scared. Um, I was, hated the black gay scene, hated the black gay community um, with a passion because they, they gossiped about me. They took my name and made it mud when they should have, at the time, should be supportive. Um, so yeah, there were men, I mean, that happened a few times where guys would call me, I'd see somebody and they'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, who told you? And then it, this person told them because they would look out for them. Right. That's kind of bullshit. So now I also... But I mean, people don't know. I get that now. I mean, I completely, right. I understand that now, but flash forward 30 years, I still get young queer men who have been diagnosed frightened about talking about their HIV right, 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 or right. also have had their status, you know, disclosed on their behalf mm-hmm. by other people. And there's just saw something on social media a couple of days ago, you know, I know these horror stories exist still 30 years later. So I found support. I went to groups and drop-in centers because they were, you know, places to hang out. You know, the staff were always lovely. You know, you could go there and you could be positive and it was safe. Get a little massage, you know, and hang out. And, but my, my issue, it wasn't an issue, but I always, I was young. So I was a lot younger than a lot of the people that were there. I was black, you know, and I wasn't ill and I wasn't dying. So when you enter that space, you know, like, oh, you're a new volunteer. And I'm like, no, actually, I'm one of you. Um, just waiting. <laughs> I might be in that chair one day. Um, went for a lot of therapy um, to kind of get myself sorted. But the outside world in, in the 80s, around HIV and the early 90s was, was scary. It was a really, really frightening time because it was this spectre that was just hanging over us. Mm-hmm. And in, I knew one or two men who were positive, and then occasionally you'd hear that somebody had died, you know, mm-hmm. but it was all mysterious. And I'm, you know, I, I can sit here, I'm never going to say scores and scores of my friends died. That didn't happen to me, right? I knew people that died. Um, I didn't know loads. I didn't lose lovers. Right. So it wasn't like this kind of what we're used to seeing. I mean, if you if you've seen a normal horror. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I know all the age. I drivers. cried my eyes out. Mm. But it's and this is I think it's true on some levels in Angels in America and, and what have you. Um, but these are all very white narratives. Yeah. And it's everyone loses everyone. Yeah. So I think our story around the epidemic is just is yet to be told. Wow. If you look at, if you, you know. What do you think is yet to be told about the epidemic that differentiates it from the mainly white narrative that we see? Just a simple, I mean, for me, it's just, if we look at it from a UK perspective, the simple story of. Right, us, the UK AIDS epidemic. Of us living through it, <laughs> right? right? The, fact, the fact that there were, the fact that there were one, two, three, at least three or four organizations set up in the 1980s. The fact that one of, actually, one of the first men diagnosed in this country was a black gay man really yes i will get more information for you because i'm gonna put that in the show notes his name is alan warren he is he died a few years ago of cancer and wow say his name again alan warrond alan warrond that might be the wrong wrong pronunciation but i'll definitely check for you okay and alan along with jonathan blake were a couple of the first men diagnosed in this country and alan was my elder to be fair, and I had a lot of time family because he was 
this older positive man who was stunning. I mean, I think he was a, he was a dressmaker. And um, he went on to set up Black Liners, which was a HIV charity for, for black for black African and Caribbean people. I'll send you a picture of that. I've got it in the archive somewhere. He set up and was involved in River House, which still runs to this day in West London because he lived in Hammersmith, so he wanted local services. And so there were men like that that I knew on the periphery um, of life. And then in the kind of late 80s, I got involved in Black Liners because I knew I was well, and so I wanted to do something. Um, and I got involved with that for a little while and then went on from there. Did you ever struggle with that wellness? Yeah. I had, I had a little moment of survivor's guilt in 94-ish, 95, um, which probably kind of about the 10th year of, of my diagnosis of wondering why I hadn't got ill. You know, what was it? What was I? And it wasn't what was I doing right or wrong. It just, it, it just weighed on me. Why you? Why me? And when you think, why me? You think, when am I going to be next? You know what I mean? It must be just around the corner. So you were well, but... I can imagine at that time that everything must have felt so urgent. <laughs> yeah. As in, I have to live today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I dropped out of college. Right. You know, I, I was on a path to go and, and, you know, study film and do a whole range of different things. You know, I was that kid in my family. Um, and it was, you've got to live now. You know, you just enjoy life. But it wasn't, it wasn't throwaway. I think I got more throwaway in my 30s. Right, when you were like, I'm totally fine. <laughs> it was a little bit of that. Fuck it, I'm going to be here. The best work. Yay! You know, and, and yeah, there was much more risk-taking. There right. was much more putting myself on the edge. I think I was a little bit more cautious about taking risks with myself. But there was a sense of live now. But there was also a limitation put on my, I put on myself. Um... So I didn't invest, I, I, I didn't go to uni, I didn't study, I worked. Right. You know, I didn't save. Why would I? Why would, yeah. So that leaves you in a slightly different position when you're in your mid-40s, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there were opportunities that were afforded to me at the time that I didn't take because it would have meant disclosure. So there were things that you didn't do because you would have had to disclose that you were HIV positive. Yeah. I couldn't travel to the States. I was, in, I, I was, sorry, you what? I couldn't travel to the States. It was just, there was a travel ban. Really? Obama lifted it. There was a travel ban for donkeys years in the US. I had no idea. They don't talk about that often, do they? Well, we used to a lot, but it's been lifted. I mean, there are a number of countries you still can't travel to if you're positive, um, up to this day, um, usually in the Middle East. Um, but in, up to in the US. Is this even positive and undetectable? Yes. Wow. Yeah, 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 you could, yeah, there are some countries, but the US, it must be 2008, 2009, it was lifted, but back in the 80s, I don't think the ban was on then, but it meant, it, it would have been, meant a level of disclosure for me, so I didn't take up the chance. Wow. But you couldn't travel to the States if you're a positive person, that was a public health measure. I remember going to the States in... Oh, that's, yeah. that makes sense, because there was, the patient zero was a flight attendant, Patient zero. Yeah, quote yeah, unquote patient quote zero. Yeah. Yes, was this white uh, flight attendant mm -hmm. who I think was originally from Toronto. I might yeah, get to do gas. Correctly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I might have gotten that incorrect. Um, so that makes sense. You know, it's so funny that, that I learned these things about HIV and AIDS 
and i.e. patient zero, and he mm. was a flight attendant, mm -hmm. and, and these esoteric descriptions of a time before me mm. then kind of come crashing into place when I speak to someone who was there and says, I couldn't fly to the States. And I go, oh my god, of course, because a flight attendant. So that's the first thing you would do. I mean, you were, you, were, you, were, you were living in a time where, you know, people were getting evicted out of their homes. Shit was being pushed through their And that was happening here. This is happening here. This happened in the UK. Physical violence. I mean, when I tell you that I would be frightened about somebody calling me up, I wasn't scared because, oh my gosh, this person's standing up on my HIV. No, I'm frightened of physical violence here. Right. I'm frightened of threats to my family, you know, I, because that I know it happened to other people. You know, the irony of that, though, is that HIV is spread through blood. So you wouldn't physically assault someone Well, at that time, yeah. right? That's, it's kind of a tenuous irony, but you know what I mean? Is that this, it speaks to the misunderstanding of what it was mm. and like the attendant navigation that you had to do. Yeah. And like understanding this, you know, you're of a generation, you're, you're the generation. But then if you also got your community that isn't, welcoming, accepting, and loving yeah. you as well. That's a lot of work to do. So I sometimes go to myself, why the fuck did I go and do things like Big Up and Black Liners and Let's Rap? And, you know, people of colour tent of pride. Why did I do it? Why did I do it for my community? Mm. Because it was, there was anger, mm. you know? But it was also, going back to what I said, it's what I do. And hopefully you see that now what you've done has had such an impact I hope so. I mean, I hope just by me, by virtue of me sitting in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean you know, I, I know that it has. I know that it does. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, my mum is always fond of saying, you know, they're going to miss you when you're gone, right? Right. Which yeah. she usually says that to me about her. <laughs> my conversation with Mark Thompson continues next week. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback about Busy Being Black or know of someone I should be in conversation with, please get in touch on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember, your support doesn't cost any money. Please rate, review, and share this podcast and follow at underscore busybeingblack on Twitter and Instagram, where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. I share.